You're listening to Policy Matters, a podcast from the Peninsula Foundation. Based in Chennai, we are a think tank bringing different perspectives to national and international affairs. This episode, titled India-China Diplomacy, we have Vishal and Air Marshal M. Mateswaran. Uh, greetings. My name is Vishal and joining me today in on the first episode of our podcast uh, from the Peninsula Foundation is Air Marshal M. Mateswaran, founder and president of the Peninsula Foundation. Uh, thank you very much, sir, for joining us. And, thank you, Vishal. Uh, uh, we will be primarily speaking about China's diplomacy uh, today. And uh, without further ado, let's get started. Uh, the first question that I would like to ask you is... Uh, there is this idea that China has been a belligerent state in several disputes in specific areas. Uh, now, according to you, would this be uh, a sort of Western perspective provided in the situation or is there some semblance of truth with regards to evidence? Uh, well, uh, belligerence is, uh, uh, is how other countries see you know, China in its behavior. Yes, certainly in recent times, it's quite clearly an aggressive stance. Their behaviors can be uh, seen as belligerent by uh, countries that are affected by it in South China Sea, by India as it sees uh, the tension in Ladakh and the behavior of Chinese in Ladakh. And of course, uh, the way China has actually uh, been dealing with the rest of the world as US sees it in the context of trade and other issues. So yes, countries will see it in recent times as belligerence. But then uh, not everybody saw it that way in the past when Deng Xiaoping initiated modernization. And uh, uh, China was seen as you know, a very responsible power collaborating with international institutions and enabling the global development apart from its own development as well. That was in the past because everybody was jumping into China to take advantage of low cost of production. Their companies were gaining enormously in profits. So these things keep changing as the environment changes. Now China has seen over the last 30 years having built its power enormously. Now they see it as a threat and therefore the even an, uh, a modern, uh, a normal aggressive action could be translated into a very belligerent action from their point of view. I completely understand that in considering China has uh, attempted at becoming a formidable contender in the international sphere, it could be a perception that there is some sort of hostility. Uh, moving on to the second question, which would be uh, in tandem with this. How important is it for China to show this gargantuan strength, either let's say in the South China Sea or on the international sphere, to keep this narrative of uh, might and strength in motion? I think one needs to, uh, you know, not look at it in a very uh, superficial or, uh, you know, uh, uh, a normal narrative in terms of power and, uh, you know, uh, power projection alone. I think one needs to go back into history as to what China is trying to achieve, given its past history. And uh, that's clearly is rooted in its culture, civilization and the Middle Kingdom syndrome. Uh, China has been a great power, and you remember Napoleon when he said in the early 19th century, he says, let China continue to sleep because the moment China awakes, it will shake the world. And that's exactly what's happening. 
so China has been in decline in the 19th century, while West was in uh, on the rise. It, it had virtually colonized the uh, rest of the world almost entirely. And the paradox is, while it uh, while Britain colonized India completely, uh, for most you know colonial empires of the West, when they moved into China, all countries started picking into a weak China by imposing unequal treaties as well as unequal trade, uh, you know, practices. And that's something, uh, uh, that is a national narrative that's been built into China's, uh, modern China's, uh, you know, uh, national narrative as a century of humiliation is one case. And the other one is, of course, not recognizing international treaties by giving a logic. And that's where we've suffered with China in, in the case of uh, Ladakh is that any treaty done by uh, a colonial or imperial power with China or with China's other territories is a treaty done in unequal terms when China was weak. And uh, that actually that kind of a logic doesn't really you know, become acceptable in international domain or international practice. But that's how China actually espouses its logic. And therefore, uh, in that context, you can see very clearly that there is a motive for China, very clearly articulated motive that China must get back its primacy in the global system. It also looks at the international order from its perspective. And it wants to be the dominant power in Asia, dominant power in East Asia. And that's how it sees uh, itself not second to anyone, but as the number one power. And therefore, it, when it actually interacts with countries, whether it's in South China Sea or on the Indo-Tibetan border or in trade war with the US, there is an aggressive approach. It's interesting how you uh, refer to China's historic tribulations and the sort of injustice perceived towards them. Uh, you mentioned Ladakh. It's interesting because I would like to move away from uh, contemporary situation in Ladakh and ask you whether things around the territorial dispute over there would have been different if India's recognition of Tibet under the Chinese flag would not have taken place. Certainly, uh, but then in hindsight, you know, everybody is wise. But at that point of time, uh, you know, the world, two thirds of the world were coming out of colonialism and imperialism, you know, post Second World War. And India got its independence in 1947. China was still in shambles, you know, internal civil war, as well as uh, they had just come out of throwing the Japanese out. Uh, so when, uh, you know, in late 1940s and early 1950s, India's leadership was Nehru, obviously, uh, particularly animated by the need to bring ancient civilizations like India and China to the fore. And he was seeing China as a partner with India that will move things to give Asia its prominence that it always had in global history. And therefore, you saw China as a partner. But when the writing was on the wall in 1950, when China moved in and occupied Tibet, and Sadar Vallabhai Patel cautioned them, there were enough elements who were, uh, you know, uh, sympathetic towards the communist ideology of socialism, who all said, no, nothing will happen to India. I mean, China is not a threat to India, but we need to move along. And here, from here on, I think, in the interest of getting China to 
recognize that we two are very, you know, uh, can be great, you know, partners, can be great allies. In that, you know, perspective, I think we gave in quite a bit without realizing that we are being, uh, you know, taken for a ride by the Chinese leadership, Chow and Lai particularly. And second, uh, we were uh, probably never didn't realize that what the action that we were taking uh, was can be seen as an appeasement to Chinese power or an acquiescement uh, to uh, China. So in 54, when we recognized Tibet as part of China, we gave up, we had immense rights. We were very close in trading practices with Tibet. And there are a lot of treaties that have cemented the relationship between Tibet and India. And historically and culturally and civilizationally, there's been much closer interaction with Tibet and Indian you know, institutions like Nalanda, all that we gave up. And when we signed the treaty in 1954, uh, we recognized Tibet as integral part of China, and we got nothing as reciprocity, uh, which is a fundamental principle in international relations. What we should have done was, if we had recognized Tibet, we should have told China that you need to recognize the McMahon line and the Johnson line as the boundary or at least the McDonald's line as a boundary, international boundary between India and China. We didn't do that. So that was a mistake in that context. Uh, it's interesting how you bring the McMahon line and the Johnson line and all the perceived delineations. Uh, surrounding that region, uh, the line of actual control, has it become some sort of a diplomatic milestone between the nations which could either take uh, an aggressive or a hostile uh, trajectory or one that could be amicable in the future? Uh, it is certainly a, a cause for aggressive stance from China's side because at the heart of it, uh, the core of this entire issue is Tibet and the uh, excitement and, uh, and the road, the old uh, trading route uh, that passed through excitement connecting Western Tibet with uh, Xinjiang uh, is, is still a very, very important communication line, very, very important road, strategically most significant for the Chinese. And therefore, uh, and of course, given the kind of problems that they have in Xinjiang and Tibet, even after more than half a century of full control over it, uh, the, uh, the Chinese quite clearly see Tibet and Xinjiang as the soft underbelly. And that is what probably made Xi Jinping two years ago or last year to make a statement that Tibet is the core national security concern. So when we now, uh, as long as, I mean, we were very late, we didn't develop our border infrastructure as fast as what the Chinese did. Chinese built, in the, within the first 30 years, they built 50,000 kilometers of, you know, uh, roads and other infrastructure in Tibet. And uh, we've uh, done nothing. We've now started off. And when we built the uh, road connecting Leh and uh, uh, DBO, that's given them a little bit of concern because we, we are in a position very clearly to dominate exception. And, and that's the soft underbelly and that, that's an insecurity as I would call it. So that aggressive stance actually flows from insecurity of what can happen to Tibet. And that gets, you know, uh, that concern gets strengthened by, by the way we've actually been host to Dalai Lama and the government in exile, Tibetan government in exile and a whole lot of Tibetans who are still resident and we look, look after them, they're culturally integrated with us as well. So all these factors, you know, contribute to the kind of behavior that the Chinese have. It's a strategic issue. 
it's it's a strategically and security wise it's a very important area and therefore there will be problems always it's not easy to settle now i understand that that's a keen insight uh, now that we've spoken extensively about the security and diplomatic measures that china has taken in specific regions uh, i would like it if we moved a little bit to the economic aspects of it as uh, what is your take on the circumstances in which china has uh, conducted its economic ventures in the belt and road initiative in developing nations as we know with several examples and uh, the what do you think of the idea that uh, pakistan or the china pakistan economic corridor is a cornerstone in the bri initiative of course the belt and road uh, initiative is a very ambitious scheme uh, and there's a larger strategic purpose behind this uh, entire scheme as xi jinping has conceived it Uh, firstly is two milestones are clearly articulated 2021 which is the 100th uh, year of uh, the chinese communist party coming into existence and 2049 the uh, you know uh, 100th anniversary of uh, coming into existence of the prc people's republic of china and uh, he's articulated by 2021 he says uh, china should be uh, well developed with very high levels of human development index and power and by 2049 quite clearly he says it needs to be the number one power with a world class military and a global reach now we don't get to those positions without actually being the foremost economic power and the global economic system integrated into your economic system you got to dominate the global economy that's how historically all hegemons and great powers have functioned and this is exactly in that process So the BRI, although it's done in a way which will develop the local regions that come along the BRI routes, and there's no doubts about it. And China pumps in enormous amount of money, but it will also benefit the uh, countries that are involved in it as well economically, provided that's done very intelligently. But that is where a lot of doubts come in. You know, if China is focused on quick gains. it can be a disaster and that's probably where the steps in the initial stages which raised a lot of concern i i i believe they are correcting that they have to correct it if they really want to make a success of bri and uh, cpec then pakistan i consider as a client state of china virtually and uh, cpec comes becomes very very important because the bri uh, not only links uh, china into the road reaching out to gwadar port and therefore access to arabian sea but also into central asia and further down through the west asia into going into mediterranean sea and into europe and cpec is therefore very very important that's why china is pumping in so much of money into cpec as well but cpec has to go through again you know the exciting road is extremely important the karakoram pass is extremely important and when we now object to it and uh, and to make bri successful as well india's economic strength if it partners china it will actually be very very comfortable for them but we've gone against that we we object to it and we don't support the bri and that probably is one of the most important reasons for this aggressive stance of china because india is seen as a stumbling block and probably a huge bottleneck that can actually disrupt the bri of course along with other partners that support india like us japan australia and other countries so the bri is a very big objective and very big uh, you know national objective for xi jinping and that could be the one of the significant reasons in the way china is looking at india and, uh, and takes a very aggressive position 
yes sir that that was a very keen insight into the economical ventures of china i believe uh, we have come to the end of the podcast session uh, and i would like to thank you very much because this is this has been a eye opening insight for me as well as our listeners into the inner workings of china and there is a an establishment that china is unwavering in its narrative and is keen on uh, planting its ground in the international sphere and completing its objective successfully thank you very much for coming and we look forward to hear from you further with our podcasts thank you very much thank you That's it on this week's episode of Policy Matters. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss our next episode.